You're listening to the Informal Bible Study, a casual and applicational look at the Scriptures. I'm John Stonge, and it's great to have you with us today. In just a few moments, we're going to be looking at the second half of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're going to be talking about the idea of living without regret. But before we get into that, I want to mention just a couple quick things related to this podcast. If you're a regular listener to this podcast and you're looking for a quick way that you could support this ministry and help us as we seek to continue to deliver these episodes each and every week, there's a couple quick ways that you could do that. First one's really easy. The next time you're logged into iTunes, leave us a quick rating or a review. You could actually do that from the podcast app if you're using an iPhone and it's just really easy. You just search for our podcast and you bring it up and you can leave the rating or review right from the app. Some of you that don't use uh, an iPhone would probably have to do that from iTunes on a computer. But when you do that, that's a way that you help us connect with more people because more ratings and more reviews isn't just to stoke our ego, although it does encourage me every time I read something nice that one of you leaves. The purpose is that it triggers iTunes' algorithm And they end up promoting the podcast more, which results in more people hearing teaching from the Word of God. A couple other quick ways that you can help us as we seek to uh, deliver this content each week. If you want to become a supporter and help underwrite the cost of our hosting and production by chipping in even just a dollar, you can do that on our website, which is pastor.us. And one other thing I'll mention about the website, if you take a look at the bookstore section of the website, there's a variety of resources there that are available for purchase, and if any of them are helpful to you, we'd certainly be grateful to make them available to you. So they're all available on our website at pastor.us, and we hope at some point you'll take a moment to check it out. Now, as I mentioned just a few moments ago, today we're going to be talking about this idea of living without regret. And oftentimes I'll hear people say things like, oh, I have, I have no regrets. There's nothing about my life I'd change. And sometimes I think that they're just saying that because they actually have quite a few regrets and they just don't want to have to acknowledge those things or just don't want to have to think about those things at any length. I know for me personally, when I think back over the course of my life, there are definitely moments in time where I learned something new by virtue of having made a mistake. But I know that if I had the opportunity to relive those moments, I would do it differently. I could think of things that I've said. I could think of things that I've done. I could think of things that I didn't do that I should have done. And if I could go back in time and change some of those things, I could easily see, knowing what I know now, living those moments out differently. But I don't have that option. So by God's grace, I try and learn from the mistakes that I've made. And when you look at the portion of Scripture that we're looking at today, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting with verse 10, and we're going to go down to the end of the chapter. But among the things that the Apostle Paul mentions in this passage is the concept of, of living without regret, as recipients of the gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, and as people who have been invited to openly repent before him, confident of his love. The Apostle Paul tells us that one of the fruits or one of the benefits of this salvation that we have received through Jesus Christ is that we have the opportunity to live without piling up a whole bunch of regrets on top of one another. So if you would turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, like I said, I'm going to start at verse 10, and this is what we read in that passage. 
For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the privilege to be able to look at it today. And we thank you for the gift of salvation that we have received through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we know that your desire for us is that our lives bring you glory, and that we not go through our time on this earth piling up regret after regret. You want us to listen to your leading. You want us to put your truth into practice. You want us to follow you with sincerity, with with our whole hearts. So, Lord, we pray that you would foster that within our lives and that we would yield submission of our hearts over to you so that we could walk faithfully with you. We thank you, Lord, for this portion of Scripture and the opportunity to be able to look at it together today. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I've mentioned over the past few weeks as we've been looking at the book of 2 Corinthians, the book of 2 Corinthians has actually been described by some people as the most emotional letter that the Apostle Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write. Because you have this church at Corinth bringing the Apostle Paul great joy, but they also had a habit of breaking his heart. We could see that when we look at the book of 1 Corinthians as well. And in his first letter to the Corinthians, you have the Apostle Paul addressing multiple issues that had cropped up in the church that were threatening things like their sense of unity or things that were contributing to their failure to model the gospel right there in the city of Corinth. And then when we get into this letter, we see the Apostle Paul going to great lengths to continue to invest in the maturity of this young church, to help them to grow. Uh, What he's doing is he's showing them the nature of what it means to be a fully devoted servant of Christ and he also makes a point when he's addressing the various things that he talks about in this, in this book to defend his authority to tell them these things as the Lord had enabled him to do so. And he also confronts the false teaching of those who were spreading falsehood in the city, specifically people who were establishing themselves as being some sort of religious leader And they were confusing the church at Corinth. Some of the people in Corinth thought that some of these eloquent speakers were were much more astute than people like the Apostle Paul. And so the affections of their hearts started drifting toward these false teachers because the Corinthians weren't noticing that the motives of these false teachers weren't pure. And as we've been looking at this book, one of the other things that we can see here is that this book shows us what it's like to live as people who are convinced that Jesus is enough for us. 
you have reminder after reminder that, that life is not easy, but it is purposeful. And so Paul uses all sorts of examples to display this. He uses some deep doctrinal truth that he takes the time to explain to help us to grow in our faith. And we're also shown all throughout this book that Christ's strength is sufficient for us in the midst of our human weaknesses. And we all have, we have so many weaknesses, naturally speaking. But in Christ, we find strength, and his strength is sufficient for all that we need. And in this portion of Scripture, you have the Apostle Paul talking about what it looks like to live a life that isn't consumed with worldly regrets. And one of the principles that he shows us here that we have as people who have received this gift of salvation that leads to repentance without worldly regret is that we've been blessed with a new way to grieve. Look at what he says in verse 10. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Grief is one of the most difficult things for people to deal with in this world. I think we would all agree with that fact. Typically, grief is a word that we associate primarily with loss. We grieve when we do things like drop our phone and the screen smashes, or we grieve when our company closes and we lose our job. We grieve when someone we love passes away. And one of the most traumatic things people can do to themselves is to hold grief inside by pretending it isn't real or pretending it isn't genuinely painful. There are quite a few unhealthy habits that we can form when it comes to failing to handle grief in a healthy way. And from a spiritual standpoint, there are two different kinds of grief. Paul differentiates in this passage between godly grief and worldly grief. And there's a big difference between the two. Worldly grief comes from trying to hold on to or possess something unhealthy or something we never really had the power to hold on to. It could also develop into a form of self-pity. In fact, I know someone who has a health issue that impacts his mobility, and he holds on to self-pity so deeply that his worldly grief is now developed into anger and resentment over the hand that he's been dealt in life, and he displays that quite frequently. Well, godly grief operates differently. Godly grief is a healthy thing that is the fruit of a conscience that's been awakened to the heart of God. A person who is wrestling with godly grief comes to a point where they recognize that something in their life isn't honoring to Christ. And as the Holy Spirit develops that conviction in their heart, they finally come to a place of repentance. They turn back to God. They experience his cleansing from their sin. And they walk forward with a, a renewed sense of the love of Jesus and his divine design for their life. And even though godly grief results in us admitting our sin, our error, our rebellion, things like that, it doesn't produce shame and regret. It produces joy. It produces relief as we come to the realization that what we were trying to hold onto wasn't in line with God's moral or sovereign will for our lives. We let it go. And with the strength that the Holy Spirit provides, we turn back to Christ in humble repentance. And that's what was starting to take place in Corinth. That church was experiencing a turnaround. You have them after uh, absorbing a worldly mindset and adopting ungodly values, they were now beginning to exhibit the fruit of repentance. 
And I can only imagine how pleased the Apostle Paul must have been to learn this information. This church he had so personally and emotionally invested in was turning back to Christ. Let me ask something personal for just a quick moment as we have all of this swirling around in our minds. Has anything snuck into our lives that we might want to apply the principle of godly grief to, like it's spoken of here in this passage? Are we a little too comfy with things that are more in line with this world's values than what Christ desires for us? What do our minds dwell on? Or what message do we preach to our hearts? What do we use to calm ourselves down when we're angry or disappointed? What information or images are we feeding our eyes and our heart? Because the love of Jesus is not going to change, we have the privilege to seek refuge in him and joyfully repent as his family. And Paul illustrates that one of the fruits that we can experience as people who have received the gift of salvation is a new way to grieve, and it's godly grief that produces repentance. Something else that Paul talks about in this passage that goes along with living without regret is this idea of living an earnest and sincere life for Christ's glory. Look again at what he says in verse 11 down to the first part of verse 13. He says, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. Have you ever been on the receiving end of an accusation or of suspicion? If you were, how did it feel? Did it make you feel defensive? Maybe embarrassed? Did you rush to clear your name and salvage your reputation? When I was a younger pastor, I had to confront an older pastor who had actually become jealous of what was taking place in the church that I was serving. And what he was doing was he, he secretly tried to influence the church board to turn against me. I thought that was extremely odd, and I never would have assumed that he would have done something like that, but it was very real, and he actually did that. And I was quite shocked and a bit discouraged that he would do something like that. Thankfully, it didn't work, although it took a little bit for us all to catch on to what he was up to, but sadly, in the process, he ended up damaging his own reputation. Well, when we look at this passage, and we look at Paul's words here, it appears that the church at Corinth was quite uncomfortable with the reputation their former actions had earned them in Paul's eyes, and they made a point to address it. Though they had once welcomed things into their lives that didn't belong there, things like sexual sin, uh, class divisions within the church, uh, doing things like idolizing eloquent speakers, they had now been prompted by the Holy Spirit to repent of this manner of living, and now they wanted to make that abundantly clear to the man who had preached the gospel to them in the first place. And Paul describes this here as being an earnestness that has been produced by the godly grief they experienced. 
They wanted to show by their lives that they were innocent of the manner of living that they had once eagerly embraced. They wanted their lives to display the genuineness of their faith in Jesus Christ, and they wanted to reassure Paul that they were on the right track with the intent not to return to the life of sin that Christ had freed them from. This is the kind of fruit that Christ produces in a life that's yielded to him. When we try to go our own way, we end up with a giant list of regrets, and I think all of us have dabbled our toes in that kind of water from time to time. But when Christ is doing the leading and the Holy Spirit is doing the counseling, we find ourselves living a life of earnest sincerity. It's a life that's been truly changed from the inside out as Christ facilitates it. Thomas Akempis once said this, he said, Be not angry that you cannot make others as you wish them to be, since you cannot make yourself as you wish to be. And Paul couldn't change the Corinthians. They couldn't even change themselves. But in Christ, they were made new, and they were invited to repent. For most of us, change does not come easy. I Not too long ago, read about a a man who lived near Nashville, and he bought a new radio, and he plugged it in, and he found the station that broadcast music from the Grand Old Opry, and then he broke the knobs off the radio so that the station could never be changed again. And In some ways, I think that might illustrate the kind of situation we may be tempted to find ourselves in spiritually. But the truth is, we are works in progress as the Lord keeps working on and in our hearts to help us conform more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. He's the one who can and does produce an earnest life among us as the fruit of genuine belief in him. And with that in mind, there's one other thing that the Apostle Paul brings up in this passage that fits nicely with this idea of living without worldly regret and that's having an attitude of joyful obedience. Look again at the second half of verse 13, and I'm just going to read right down to verse 16. But it says there, And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Some years ago, I had the chance to visit a church that's pastored by a good friend of mine. I had a a Sunday off, and since he doesn't live too far from me, I went to hear him preach. And he had been telling me about some really helpful updates that his church had made to their sound and their video system. So in addition to hearing him preach, I was also eager to see some of this new technology in action. But unfortunately, they had glitch upon glitch with their technology that Sunday, and eventually They had to give up on using the system during that service until they could get it fixed. And I could tell that after all his talking, my my friend, and I, I felt bad for him, but he felt embarrassed that that's what I experienced, that I saw the system act all glitchy after he had spoken so well of it. Well, pastors, what do we do? We We boast about things like sound systems. What do parents brag about? Well, parents brag about their kids. Grandparents... grandparents, they're the absolute worst because they brag about two generations of descendants, right? Their kids and their grandkids. 
And it appears from this passage that Paul had done some joyful boasting about the Corinthians when he was speaking to his fellow worker, Titus. Thankfully, even though it looked like things weren't going to work out very well for the Corinthians at one point, that had now changed. And they ended up refreshing Titus when Titus came to visit. They also showed Titus that Paul's kind words about them were true. When Titus visited them, he observed their obedience to Christ. What a wonderful thing that is to see. And when it comes down to it, isn't that the fruit of genuine faith? You know, doesn't, doesn't genuine faith result in obedience to Christ? Look at what it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. It tells us, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So Abraham had faith in the Lord, and his faith produced obedience. In James chapter 2, verse 18, it says this, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So what does Scripture teach us? It teaches us that obedience is the fruit of genuine faith in Christ. The evidence of true faith is a changed life. If I tell you I love Jesus, but my life never comes around to actually doing what he said, then you would be right to question the sincerity, or at least the maturity, of my faith. Because what did Jesus tell his apostles before he ascended back to heaven? Well, in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, we read, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's what Jesus said. Jesus told us that true disciples obey him. Because we're convinced of his love, because we're convinced of his presence with us, we value his word and we listen to what he says. I have to confess that one of my big concerns for our generation is our ability to rationalize what we want to do even when it conflicts with the revealed will of Jesus. I am not surprised to see that on display from the unbelieving world, but I actually think it's tragic when professing Christians choose to live with willful disregard for the the unambiguous teaching of God's Word. I think it's the fruit of self-idolatry. It's the result of forgetting the fact that Jesus loves us deeply. It's the product of minimizing the work Jesus accomplished to purchase our freedom from sin on the cross. The Corinthians were now learning to be joyfully obedient to Christ. And that's a lesson that Christ wants us to learn as well. The context that you and I live in right now is very similar to what the Corinthians were living in. And Christ wants us to learn what it means as an outpouring of our faith to be joyfully obedient to him. Because a life that's lived in joyful obedience to Christ as an outpouring of genuine faith is a life that doesn't pile up needless worldly regrets. Our lives are too precious to Christ for them to be misused. It's not his desire for us to walk through this world piling up a list of regrets. Rather, 
He invites us to foster a heart of repentance and to live with sincerity before him with joyful obedience as the fruit of our faith. By ourselves, we know that this could never be done. So the question is, do we trust Jesus to empower us to make this possible? He promises he'll be with us. Do we trust him to empower us to live this kind of life for his glory? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to look at it and to meditate on its content and to think about all the different things that you've revealed to us in it. And Lord, we recognize that we are people that, left to ourselves, have a tendency to just pile up regret after regret in this world. I guess in large part because we minimize the work that you've done on the cross and we overemphasize our own natural abilities or our own natural wisdom. We tend to idolize ourselves instead of glorifying you. But Lord, we know that you desire that we be your devoted disciples in all manners and in all areas of life. And we know, Lord, that you can foster that kind of activity in our hearts and in our lives, that that would be true of us as you make it possible. So Lord, we're grateful for that. We're grateful for your love. We're grateful for your counsel. We're grateful for the strength that you provide. Lord, we're grateful for what you accomplished for us on the cross. After having lived the perfect life, you died on the cross to pay for our sin, and then you rose from the grave, and you share that victory with all of us. And the same power within you as you rose from the grave is within each and every one of us through faith in you. But Lord, sometimes we forget about that fact. We try and rely on our own power, and the regrets pile up. Lord, day by day we pray that in your strength we would trust you, and that that trust would bear itself out in our day-to-day living as we obey what you have taught us in your word. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your presence with us, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Informal Bible Study. We're happy to bring these episodes to you every Monday. And if you haven't ever done so, we invite you to check out our website, which is pastor.us. Hopefully that's an easy web address to remember, pastor.us. And on our website, we have a variety of things. If you want to become a supporter of the podcast, there's a link to do so there. If uh, you want to purchase any of the resources that we have available in our bookstore, there's a whole list of things on the website that you can check out, and we believe that they'll be beneficial to you in your walk with Christ. And uh, as we mentioned at the start of the episode, if you ever get a chance to leave us a rating or review on iTunes, we'd be extremely grateful for it. It's super helpful to us as we try to reach new people each and every week with the truth of God's Word. So that's it for us today. We hope you have a wonderful day, and we look forward to getting together again with you next week. Thanks again for listening. Take care. No matter what you're going through, you are not alone. Sis, if you've experienced pain in your father-daughter relationship, I want you to know that you are loved and seen. 
I'm Kia Stevens, host of the Hope for Women with Father Wounds podcast, and I created my show to help you exchange your father wounds for the love of God the Father. Join me for encouragement, wisdom, and scripture. Just search Hope for Women with Father Wounds on lifeaudio.com or wherever you get your podcasts.